We sang this morning, He won't fail. He won't fail. That is significant considering the passage that we're reading this morning. Thank you so much for bearing with that. That was a lengthy passage. I know a bit longer than we're usually used to. And the reason for the length of the passage is because if you, if you look at it, it's, it's a full unit. It's one story. We begin with Jesus predicting that the disciples would desert him, and we end with that very thing. Psychologists today tell us that our body, that is our, our brains, have three natural responses to any perceived threat. Do you know what they are? Can you say them? Fight, flight, freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. In any situation where we feel threatened, we typically respond in one of those ways. And perhaps you've experienced this. I have. And I'm going to share with you a story about myself. This is true. Every word of it. Several years ago, I was walking through Spitler Woods. If you know where Spitler is, it's a great place to hang out, a great place to explore, a great place to play. I was coming back from a youth event because at the time, our house lived almost directly across from Spitler Woods, and I could just walk home. And it was about dusk. So, you know, it was about the time when it was hard to see, and I'm walking through the woods, and I'm on a trail, and everything's fine, but all of a sudden, I heard a baby crying. And I don't, I don't watch scary movies anymore, but I did in my early years, and I know when there's a baby crying in the dark woods, that's not a good thing. <laughs> but I honestly looked around. I couldn't see anything, so I kept walking. A little bit later, I heard the noise again, and I turned to my right further into the woods, and I saw a white blur motion. That also did not register as a good thing to me. I continued to hear the baby crying, and it came back around me, came where I had been down the trail, hit the trail, and then come and came right at me. All the time, this white blur and this baby crying getting louder and louder, and I froze. I didn't fight, and I didn't flee. I froze. And about 10 feet away, I finally saw that it was a man in a white t-shirt pushing a baby carriage. I kid you not. And as he passed by, I think he even said, hey, but I was too frozen to respond. This is a true thing. Those are our responses. We fight, we flee, or we freeze. And interestingly enough, we can make the argument that these three responses are in the disciples in our passage today. In our passage, Jesus famously says something that we've all heard. Even secular circles use this message. It's this, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. And that's exactly what we see here. We see willing spirits. Peter and the other disciples have a willingness. They, want, they have a willpower that they want to do what's right, but their flesh is weak. When it comes down to it, they fight, they freeze, and they eventually flee. I want to point out three weaknesses of the flesh this morning. Actually, what I want to do is I want to show a progression in weakness. 
There's a progression in the weakness in the text here. I want to show how the disciples progress from, into, from, uh, from a weakness to a weakness. Their, weak, their flesh is weak. And by the way, by flesh, what I'm talking about here is I mean that the strength of man apart from God. When I'm talking about the flesh this morning, I don't mean the skin. I mean the strength of man apart from God. How strong is that flesh? We're going to find out in our passage today. So by way of reminder, where are we in the book of Mark? We're in chapter 14. We've been studying the passion narrative for several weeks now. And the passion narrative is Jesus' journey toward the cross. Every week, he gets closer and closer to the cross. His earthly ministry is just about over. We've seen Judas conspiring with the chief priests. We saw Mary anointing Jesus for his burial. Last week, we saw the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples and inauguration of the communion or Lord's Supper And we continue that passion narrative now by joining Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, as you're reading this, take note that our passage contrasts Jesus and the disciples. We're going to see God's strength in Jesus versus the strength of the flesh in the disciples. So join me, if you will. I'm going to go back through Mark chapter 14. I'm going to begin in verse 26. Mark writes, And when they had sung a hymn... They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Your first point this morning is this. When the flesh fails to believe. We're looking at a progression. The first part is this. When the flesh fails to believe. This is the fight response that we're seeing here. Peter and the disciples are like, no, we will stay with you, Jesus. Jesus says, you will all fall away. But they say, no. Peter says, not me. I'm not going to do it. I'm here for you. But is he really? Let's break down a passage. It opens up with this. It says they sang a hymn. They could have sung this while they were still in the upper room. They could have sung it along the way to the Mount of Olives. They could have done both. It was very common, especially in Passover, to sing what we call the Hallel hymns, or the Psalms, sorry, the Hallel Psalms, which would have been Psalms 113 through 118, those were the psalms that they sung around the time of the Passover. It's kind of like we have Christmas carols that we sing around Christmas time. And they go to the Mount of Olives, and we've been here before. You may remember that the Mount of Olives was a hilly range that was east of Jerusalem, and it was named so because olive groves were planted all over the range. And we get the sense that Jesus is talking to them as he's walking with them. And just like we said last week, Jesus drops another bomb. He says, you will all fall away. Now, that's one word in Greek. You will all fall away. That's one word in Greek. It's the word skandalizo. It comes from the word scandalon, and you can hear the word scandal in there. And it has a range of meanings. It can mean to give offense. It can mean to anger. It can mean to shock. It could mean to feel repugnant. What Jesus is saying here is that you are going to be shocked. You're going to feel repugnant. You're going to feel shame. You're going to be offended. 
because of me. That's what he's telling them. They're going to lose their faith. They're going to lose their courage. They're going to desert Jesus. And to show that this is really going to happen, he backs it up with Scripture. He quotes from Zechariah 13.7, which reads, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus is saying here that this prophecy, what Zechariah 13.7 said, is going to be fulfilled tonight. You're going to strike me, or, or rather, the Lord is going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's what's going to happen. But then, just like again we saw last week, but then Jesus gives a glimmer of hope. Last week he gave the glimmer of hope by telling them he was going to drink of the cup of wine again in the kingdom. Here's the glimmer of hope here. He says, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus has talked about his resurrection Many times. In fact, every time that he talked about his death, he talked about his resurrection. He always left them with hope, and he's doing that here again. When I come back, what he's saying is, when I come back, I'm going to be your leader again. I'm going to be your shepherd again. And in reference to this resurrection, by the way, something interesting I learned this week, Jews did not teach an individual resurrection. They taught a coming resurrection as a whole nation. They taught that the whole nation was going to be raised on the last day. Martha believed this. You may remember when Jesus asked her if she believed her brother Lazarus would be raised, she responded, John eleven twenty four. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What she's referring to there is the resurrection that we've been learning about on the last day when everyone's raised. But then Jesus says this to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. The Jews believed that the whole nation was going to be raised. And there's truth in that, actually. There is truth in that. Everyone that has died, that, that has known Jesus Christ, will be raised when Christ comes back to get us. There is truth in that. But Jesus is speaking of an individual re- resurrection. He's speaking of his own resurrection. And the disciples can't grasp that. Their theology does not allow for that. And Peter doesn't like this at all. And it's interesting it's always Peter. Peter here, he's done this before. When Jesus told them the first time that he was going to Jerusalem to die, you remember Peter objected. And this, is, and he, this is when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember that passage? And again, Peter refuses to believe the master's words. He says, even though they all follow, even though they all are scandalized because of you, I will not. And you've got to admire his courage. You've got to admire his words. You've got to admire his intentions here. But where is this coming? It's coming from a place of disbelief. Jesus just told him what's going to happen and backed it up with Scripture. And it wasn't flattering. And Peter did not believe it. He speaks out against the truth. And then Jesus says these words that pierce Peter's soul. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Of course, you're probably familiar with the story. We're going to look at it in a few weeks. Peter does deny Jesus before the rooster crows. 
We typically think of roosters crowing at dawn, but honestly, roosters crow at various times, usually to alert the hens of a, of a, of a danger, and we're going to see that in the weeks to come. But Peter, notice, he's still not having it. It says emphatically, he says, if I must die with you, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All the disciples are saying the same thing. We're not going to leave you, Jesus. This is the fight response. We are in. And although their hearts might be in the right place, it does stem from a place of unbelief. They don't believe his words. Jesus had never before been wrong. And he backs up his statement with his own word. And how many times has someone told you something and you were skeptical? You chose not to believe it, only to find out that it was true. I was trying to think of a specific example to that, because I have so many times when I didn't believe somebody, and I should have. There's been times where my wife has said to me, hey, we're out of you know, XYZ, apples, carrots, you name it. I'm like, no, we're not. And I open the fridge, oh, yeah, we are. I believe that in this passage, Peter believed himself. I believe that he was filled with good intentions, but good intentions do not win the day. Peter relied on his own personality. He relied on willpower. In the end, it failed him. And we, too, fall victim of this way of thinking. We can think, I'll try harder. I'll do better. I won't fail. But relying on our willpower, relying on our flesh is utterly useless. Instead, how do we have true strength? Because here's the truth. Here's the truth of every single person in this room. You and I will fail. It's already happened today. You and I will fail. How should the disciples have responded to this? How could they have gained strength from Jesus' words here? They should have responded like this, Jesus, help me. Instead of, I'm going to muster up my strength and I'm going to stand next to you, they should have turned to him and said, help me. Give me the strength that I need. They should have looked to him for their strength and not themselves. They should have believed him, and that belief could have propelled them to at least seek, for him, seek to him for strength and what to do. They could have said, well, what do you want us to do, Jesus? Give us the strength. What do you want of us? How do we get this true strength? You know, there's a place in Ephesians where Paul writes this. You can follow along as I, on the screen behind me. Paul writes, For this very reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is Paul saying there in Ephesians? He's saying that he wants the Ephesian church to be strengthened with power in the inner self. What is the inner self? It's the opposite of the outer self. Thank you very much, Pastor Ryan. Yes, no. What is the inner self? It's the soul. It's what we refer to as the heart. 
in Hebrew thought, the heart was more than just the emotions. We typically think of the heart as our emotions, and it is that, but it's more. In Hebrew thought, it was the seat of the mind, will, and emotions. The heart was where you did your thinking and your feeling and your choosing. The heart drives every part of us. You know, in 1 Samuel 16, do you remember this story? It's when Samuel goes to anoint one of Jesse's sons. God told him he'd rejected Saul, go anoint a son of Jesse. And when Samuel gets there, the firstborn passes by and Samuel's impressed with the outer appearance. He says, surely this is the man. Because the firstborn just had it, he had the looks, he had the stance of a king. But God says to Samuel, God says this, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Paul is saying in Ephesians 3 that he wants your inner life, your heart to be strengthened. How is the inner self strengthened? How is it strengthened? He tells us there in that passage. Did you catch it? By knowing the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. We are strengthened. We overcome the weakness of the flesh by knowing God's love. Karl Barth was a Swiss Reformed theologian. He was born in 1886. He died in 1968. He's most well known for his commentary on the book of Romans, and it is said of him that he was once asked, what is the most profound theological truth you have ever learned? And this seasoned, well-learned man, Karl Barth, is reported to have said this, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. How do we strengthen the inner life? How do we move from relying on the flesh to relying on God? We contemplate his awesome, never-ending, precious love. You do that through his word. You do that through song. You do that through prayer. You do it any way that you can, but you contemplate God's love. That's how we strengthen the inner life. I heard a pastor say one time, he who knows you to the depths of your being, that is your sinfulness, your everything, your ugliness, all of it, he who knows you to the depths of your being loves you to the stars. You can't find that love in another human relationship. Even in marriage, we are weak. But he who knows you to the bottom loves you to the stars. Know the love of God. With that in our inner selves, we would soar with confidence. We would soar with our love for others. We would soar with knowing our God. And that's where victory starts. If the disciples had strong inner lives, they would have fared much better than they did. Instead of relying on the flesh, on their strength, they would have been relying on God's strength through his love for them. When the flesh fails to believe. Here's your second point. When the flesh fails to believe, then the flesh fails to keep watch. Join me in verse 32. I'm going to go ahead and read this passage. It's a bit lengthy. Follow along as I read. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he, went, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When the flesh fails to believe, then the flesh fails to keep watch. Here's where they freeze. Let's pick up the story. Jesus and his disciples, they go to Gethsemane, which was a garden on the Mount of Olives. It was a favorite place of Jesus. He used to go here with his disciples and pray. And he gives the command to sit while he goes and pray. And it's interesting, it was common. It was common on the Passover evening that the tradition of the Jews was to stay up. They would stay up on Passover and they would discuss God's redemption. Maybe they would talk about that night in Egypt when the the angel of death passed over their houses, but they would stay up late. That was tradition. In fact, it was such a custom that likely the disciples had done it all throughout their lives on other Passovers, which makes the events on this evening very surprising. Let's keep reading. It says, he took with him Peter, James, and John. Now remember, this was the inner circle. He leaves the eight disciples. Remember, Judas is not with him. Eight disciples are left. He takes with him Peter, James, and John. And these men, you'll remember, these are the men he took when he, when, when he rose uh, Jairus' daughter. These men he took to the mountain of transfiguration. These men he made significant statements to. These men made significant statements to him. We saw Peter just a moment ago declare that he would never leave Jesus. And James and John, do you remember this? James and John declared they, would, they could take the cup that Jesus took. Do you remember that story? Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him, and they want to sit on his right and left hands in the kingdom. And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said, we are able. And whether they knew it or not, he was referring to his death. He's saying, are you, can you do this? They're saying, we can. Peter says, I'm going to die with you. Here's your chance. Here's your chance to live up to your words. Pick it up in verse 33. And Jesus here began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. That word sorrowful that Jesus uses here, it's the same word that Mark used last week of the disciples when Jesus revealed to them that there was a traitor in their midst. It's a strong word of emotion. He is deeply grieved. And have you ever been with somebody who's deeply grieved? It can be unsettling. It can even be 
awkward. And instead of focusing on the person, it's easy to focus on self. And that seems to be what happens here. Jesus tells them, remain and watch. And by the way, that's the same phraseology from Mark 13. When Jesus was telling them about what's to happen in the future, he kept coming back to this idea, be watchful, stay awake, same idea. And literally they get their chance to do this. You spoke big, Peter. You spoke big, James and John. Here's your moment, but look at verse 35. And going a little further, he, that is Jesus, fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It was very common in this culture, and we see Jesus doing this earlier, that when they prayed, they would do, it, do so standing with their arms raised. When one fell on their face, it was a sign of lament. Jesus' prayer is summarized in verse 35. He is praying that his hour might, this hour might pass from him. In other words, that he might not face what's to come. He is sorrowful and grieved about what's to come. And we get these three sentences, Abba, Father, which is a term of deep affection. It's a term that children used for their fathers. Abba was like daddy. And the Jews at this time, they did not call God Abba. A Jewish person would not say that it was too intimate. But that's exactly the relationship that Jesus wants for us to have with our Father. It's the relationship he has with the Father and it's the relationship he wants, he wants us to have. Abba, Father. In fact, Romans 8.15 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remove this cup. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the coming cross, the pain, the suffering, the humiliation? Partly. But ask yourself a question. Why is he in such a state of grief and sorrow? Why? So many Christians, you have read about, I have read about, have gone to their deaths and they did so with their heads held high. They were martyred, proud to be martyred for their Savior. But we get to Jesus in Mark 14 and other passages tell us he is so distraught that he is sweating drops of blood. He's asking the Father to take this cup away. Why? Why cannot the founder of our faith hold his head up high and face his death? The answer is in the cup. What is the cup? The cup is in the Old Testament is a representation of God's wrath or God's judgment. Isaiah 51, 17 reads, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. It's the cup of God's wrath. See, Jesus was not just facing the pain 
the pain that lay ahead, as excruciating as it was, he's facing something that he had never faced before. He was facing the coming wrath of God. God was about to pour his wrath on his own son so that you and I would never have to endure such a fate. To face the wrath of God is a fate worse than death, a fate worse than torture. Those who face the wrath of God do so forever and ever in the burning pits of hell. And if you know Jesus, you will never know that torment. Do you know him? Do you know your Savior? Have you turned from your sin, that is that the sin that is trying to do life your own way, and have you trusted Jesus to forgive you of your sins? Have you done that? You can do that today. You too can avoid the wrath of God. All it takes is repenting. That word means to turn from our sin. Repenting and confessing to him our sin and believing in his work on the cross and the grave, believing that it was payment for your sin. You can do that today. And if you have questions, come catch me, come talk to me. I'd be happy to share more. Jesus faced the wrath that you and I, Christian, you and I will never have to face. That's what he's doing, and that's what he knew he was gonna face. And that's why the sorrow. That's why the grief Jesus prays, and then the text says in verse 37, he came and found them sleeping. What did he tell them to do? He told them to watch. He came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. I told you earlier the Passover was a time when Jews stayed up late and discussed God's redemption, This was an unlikely response from Peter and the disciples to fall asleep. It was unlikely. And Jesus here, you can even hear it. He gives them a gentle rebuke. Could you not watch one hour? Just one hour. What happened to all the boasting in verse 31? Jesus tells them again, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That could mean a simple reference to not being tempted to sin, not falling into temptation of sin, or it could be that Jesus is saying there, stay awake so you can pass the test. The test is coming. This is the test. Stay awake. Jesus knows Judas is coming. He knows the disciples are about to flee him, and this could be his way of saying, do you want to pass the test? You want to make good on your promises? Watch and pray. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. I said at the start of this sermon, that's a popular saying, even among secular circles. What is Jesus actually saying there? He's saying the human spirit might be willing. We might have all the good intentions of the world. We might have all the willpower that we can drum up, but the flesh can't follow through. In the disciples' case, they were too tired to carry through. They may have wanted to. They may have expressed it, but they were too tired to carry through And my friends, that sounds like you and me. We make such big promises only to fail. And I want to point something out to you. Do you notice what Jesus says to Peter? He says, Simon. Ever since chapter three of the book of Mark, he'd been known as Peter. Now it's Simon. 
Why? Could it be that Peter was acting more like his old self by falling asleep? Was Jesus trying to draw attention to him by using a former name? Maybe. Whatever the reason, Jesus leaves and his words to the disciples, they don't stick. It says, and again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. He comes back, and they're so tired. He says their eyes were very heavy. They'd fallen back asleep, and this time, they have no response. No response. Again, have you ever been around someone distraught, and you just don't even know what to say? That's where we are. So he goes and he prays again, verse 41. Then he came a third time. He'd gone and prayed. He comes back a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The third time Jesus comes, they're still asleep, and then Jesus says, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. And that phrase, it is enough, it's a bit difficult to translate. It's a bit difficult to know which direction it's supposed to be attached to. Is it supposed to be attached to the sleeping? In other words, it's enough. Your sleeping is enough. Stop being sleepy. Wake up. Is it attached to that? Or is it attached to the hour has come? It is enough. In other words, prayers are done. The Father has not answered. Time to move forward. Personally, I like to think it's both but there is some debate on that. Nevertheless, Jesus does say the hour has come. The Father did not answer his prayer, and Jesus will obey. He will drink the cup. Why did the flesh fail to keep watch? Because the disciples were consumed with self. And I honestly can't be too hard on them. Maybe I'm coming across hard. I don't mean to. I can't be too hard on them because I'm the same way. I'm lazy. I'll share with you another story. Years ago, before Heather and I were even married, my father and I drove from Birmingham, Alabama to Oklahoma where my parents lived at that time. And we were trying to drive straight through. Anyone ever done that? Drive straight through, don't sleep, take turns, just plow on through the road He was driving, and he was depending on me to help him stay awake, and I kept falling asleep. Why? My eyes were heavy. I was into myself. I was into my own comfort. See, the reason the flesh fails to keep watch is because the flesh is in this life for itself. When we don't believe, we're in life for self, and the flesh does what the flesh wants to do. I want comfort. I want happiness. Forget the person over here who's suffering and needs help. I'm looking out for me. And when we're in this life for ourselves, we can, like the disciples, get caught like a deer in the headlights when someone needs help. When someone approaches us with a real need, we can freeze. We can fail to respond. When we're in this life for ourselves, we can't see straight enough to love someone. 
when we're consumed with our own comfort and our own issues and our own plans and our own problems, it's like we're asleep to the rest of the world. Our families suffer, our neighbors suffer, our coworkers suffer, the church suffers, missionaries suffer, everyone suffers when we don't keep watch. So my friends, watch and pray. That word watch can mean to stay awake, but it can also mean to be constantly ready. Be ready for those in need. Be ready for when the attacks of the enemy come. Be aware of your weakness and how you are prone to fail. Pray that you do not enter into temptation. Pray that you do not freeze when your Savior wants you to act on the behalf of another. Pray for strength to fight temptation. Pray for the ability to overcome your weakness. Watch and pray for the strength to overcome when everything inside of you just wants to look out for itself. The flesh fails to keep watch. Here's your third point. Finally, the flesh resorts to flight. When the flesh fails to believe, then the flesh fails to keep watch, and finally the flesh resorts to flight. Follow along, verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as a robber? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What we see here is the culmination of point one. This is the progression of the flesh. It doesn't end well. Unbelief leads to a failure to keep watch, which ends in fleeing. When we fail to believe God, we won't keep a watch on our souls, and the end result is that we run when we should stand. We saw this in the Garden of Eden. Eve disbelieved God when she reached for the fruit. Adam, though standing near, failed to keep watch, and both of them fled and hid. Judas comes with a crowd that's armed to the teeth. They come as if Jesus were a messianic revolutionist, which they had a lot of those back then. But they come to Jesus as if he's been trying to stir up the people. And Judas gives them a sign and says, the one I kiss will be the man. Now in that culture, kissing was a common greeting. Even among men, masters and disciples would kiss as a greeting. It was very common. And this hostile crowd... Now, something interesting, they knew what Jesus looked like. Why did this kiss even need to happen? Possibly, the explanation is, it's dark, it's in the garden. Of course, there's all the disciples there, not just Jesus. Perhaps this was Judas' way of saying, I'll go in first, you can stay hidden, and the man I kiss will be the man you know, and then you can rush in and seize him. Perhaps that's the answer. But Judas greets, and he kisses his, his master, his Lord. 
And they do just that. They seize him. Verse 47 tells us, One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know from the Gospel of John this is Peter. Maybe at last this is Peter trying to make good on his word in verse 21, but it's too late. He's just reacting in the flesh. This is not the way. Jesus doesn't even condone this act of violence. Look at verse 48. Jesus said to them, have you, now he's talking to the crowd, have you come out against, as, as, sorry, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is condemning this whole situation. They come out as if expecting this great resistance And when the whole time that Jesus was teaching in Jerusalem, and he never once incited a rebellion, this is overacting, or this is is over-responding here. He wasn't going to do any sort of rebellion, and he's not going to start now. And that's why he didn't condone Peter's action here. This is not the way. This is not the plan. The whole scenario here in Jesus' mind is ridiculous. It's almost like Jesus is saying, this is completely unnecessary. You need only ask, and I'm here. But then he said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. What scriptures? The scriptures that prophesy what's going to happen. His betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, all of it. And the scripture he just quoted a few moments ago, that the disciples would desert him. And here's the fulfillment, verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew, all of them. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The flesh is weak. They all flee. They spoke of big things, but when it comes down to it, when the rubber met the road... They're gone. And Mark is the only one who includes this detail about this young man wearing a linen cloth. And admittedly, it's a bit of a bizarre detail. The linen cloth would have been kind of an undergarment, and possibly it was grabbed by one of the crowd, and he just wriggled out and ran. But we have to ask ourselves, why would Mark include this? Some think that this young man is Mark, that Mark is inserting himself in the passion narrative here, that could be true. We don't know for sure. But still, why would you write something like this about yourself? This is, this, let's just be honest, this is humiliating. And in Jewish culture, like most cultures, like nakedness was abhorrent. It was unlikely that anyone would write such a thing, especially about themselves. So why is it here? I ask myself that question. I knew this passage was coming, and I honestly had no idea what I was going to say. But the Lord showed me why this is here. This is to demonstrate how desperate they were to get away from Jesus. They were scandalized by their master to the point that this one fled naked. That's the level of desperation they were at, forsaking everything, even clothes, to get away from Jesus. It's really a 
demonstration of our own state. We run from God. In the weakness of the flesh, the disciples dishonored Jesus. They left their master in fear, even after they'd sworn they would stay with him and die with him. But my friends, do we not do the same? Do we not dishonor Jesus too? What does our fleeing look like? When we fail to take a stand for Christ, when we fail to witness, though a clear opportunity is right before us, when we fail to intentionally lead our families, when we fail to love our fellow brothers and sisters, we might as well be fleeing into the night alongside the disciples. When we fail to obey our Lord and Savior, we're essentially saying, your ways are too hard, Jesus, I'm out. And we flee into the night. Why? Because the flesh is weak. It all goes back to the failure to believe. How do we keep from fleeing? Believe. When he says your sins are forgiven, believe it. When he says you are more than conquerors, believe it. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, though you did it to me, believe it. When he says, take heart, I have overcome the world, believe it. That kind of faith is the kind that will keep our feet firmly planted in place when the trials and temptations strike. That's the kind of faith that won't give up and flee when our Savior calls us to obey. Believe. You know something? Jesus was abandoned by his friends. We read about that in this story. He was betrayed by an intimate follower. He was led away alone to face what lay ahead. But my friends, that's not even the worst of it. He was left alone by every human friend, but he was also left alone by his Holy Father. Jesus would die totally, utterly abandoned including from his own father. He cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the cry that he was dreading. Yes, the pain of the thorns, the pain of the whips, the pain of the nails, yes. The pain of being deserted and being left alone by his friends, by his disciples, yes. But the pain of being left alone by his own heavenly father whom he had never been parted from in all of eternal history. We've all got father wounds. And they go deep. And they affect us. But Jesus was abandoned by a perfect father. When he went to the cross... He went completely innocent. God did not answer his prayer. And God turned his face from him. Why? That's what it cost.
That was the cost for your sin and for my sin. That's what it took to purchase our salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let that thought marinate in your heart this week. Ponder the loneliness of Jesus for you. That'll melt our hearts. That'll let the Spirit do his work in our lives so that we won't rely on the flesh and fail. Fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the responses, and the disciples did all three, but Jesus did none. When they lost their heads and were ready to fight, Jesus remained calm. When they froze, unsure of what to do, Jesus went to his Father in prayer. When they fled, leaving him all alone, Jesus remained standing, ready to walk the path his Father had laid out for him. Church, look to your Savior. In him is the strength we need to conquer the flesh. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you allowed yourself to be abandoned by your friends. You allowed yourself to be abandoned by the Father. And you did this on our behalf. You were calm when we wanted to fight. You took action when we froze. You stood firm when we fled. You were strong. We are weak. Lord Jesus, we need your strength. Strengthen us with power in our inner being. Let us know your love. Let us experience your love. Let us taste of your love and let that strengthen our hearts to believe, to believe you, to keep watch and to stand firm. Help us, Lord. We need you. And we pray this in the great and awesome and righteous name of Jesus. And all God's people said...